Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Headley. I was prepared to write off a literal, lifelong battle with insomnia as just being part of spending more than 30 years in morning television and radio. Well, I dug a little deeper and found out that I had a lot more to learn. So, in this series, we try to fix your sleep by figuring out why mine is so horribly broken, and maybe we can stumble upon some answers together. There is almost too much show here this week. In fact, I may need to ask you to leave a quarter beside your phone or your computer or whatever you listen to the show on, because we are quite loaded with show. At least that's how I hope you feel about it. I hope you get to the end and you go, wow, what a load of show that was. Before I get into the details, I want to take care of a couple of items of business. Now, I don't normally do this, but I wanted to thank the person who jumped on Apple Podcasts and left the following review there along with a five-star rating. They said, and I quote, This is an excellent source of information on sleep problems and how to fix them. Guests are among the most renowned in the field of sleep medicine. Highly recommended. Um, If you're listening right now and those are your words, thank you. We aim to please. If you get something out of these episodes, uh, there's a link on our website that I want to direct you to. If you go to thesnoozebutton.com, there is a link across the top that says reviews, feedback, and support. Could you do me a favor and click that link for me? Every single person that clicks that link makes a difference. Uh, and, And once you go to that page, you'll see what I mean. One other piece of business related to the Sleep 2020 conference that happened virtually this year, and as I'm recording this, just wrapped up a few hours ago, there was some pretty incredible sleep science from hundreds of gifted researchers. And if you were one of the attendees or one of the presenters or one of the session leaders who did some of the live streaming, I want to use this as your official invitation to come on the show and talk about the work you're doing. It starts with sending us an email. The email address is guests at thesnoozebutton.com. That's guests at thesnoozebutton.com. That is all it takes to get the ball rolling. I had hoped to deliver that invitation in person if the conference had gone as scheduled in Philadelphia this year, but we'll see you next year, wherever Sleep 2021 is happening. Now, later on in this week's episode, I'm hoping we can squeeze in my friend Dr. Michael Grandner from the University of Arizona after wrapping up that virtual sleep conference. We also have Dr. Spencer Dawson, a clinical psychologist in private practice specializing in behavioral sleep medicine. Yeah, have you ever had one of those nights where it seems like you literally blinked but you look at the clock and hours have gone by or maybe a night where you wake up feeling like you slept pretty well, but your partner's mad at you (laughs) because you actually were tossing and turning all night long, even though you have no memory of that. It's something called sleep state misperception. And we're going to get into that and a bunch of other topics with Spencer. Before any of that, though, I want to introduce you to Evo Terra, and let me introduce him this way. According to the My Podcast Reviews service by Daniel J. Lewis, there are currently 1,429,590 podcasts available in Apple Podcasts. That's not podcast episodes. That's 1,429,590 different shows. Evo Terra had show number 40, the 40th podcast ever produced 
belonged to Evo. Since then, he's done tons of shows. He's written the Podcasting for Dummies series of books and maintains his status as one of the all-time giants of the podcast industry. He took some time away from his current show, Podcast Pontifications, to chat with me about his battles with insomnia. Evo, everybody that has been on the show including people that have been on multiple times, and I imagine it's annoying for them, they all get the same first question. So here it comes for you as well. How did you sleep last night? <sighs> Does that answer the question? <laughs> is there a lot of frustration coming through there? Is that what, that, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. Yeah. Last night was a weird night. Uh, like many of, of my nights are going. I, I was compounded by uh, by other issues. It wasn't just me last night. How about that? I didn't sleep great, but it wasn't completely my fault this time. Wow. Okay. That's mysterious and vague. I like it. How much of that is a function of your entrepreneurial life? Because I think it was Seth Godin that first pointed out to me that in the world of the entrepreneur, there is no such thing as done. There is always the opportunity to answer one more email, to make one more call, to go through one more task list, etc. How much of whatever sleep stuff you run into is a factor of you just not being able to peel yourself away from your desk? Almost none over the last five years. Prior to that, almost all. So what do you do when sleep doesn't show up for you? What's your trick? Do you have a go-to? Not a reliable one when it doesn't show up. It again depends on how we want to discuss doesn't show up. Most of my sleep problems are staying asleep. I'll, I'll begin this conversation this way. So many years ago when I was running, uh, working in a digital advertising agency, running one of the big teams, the owner of the agency and I were simpatico on a lot of things, and we were both sharing some ideas of what it means to run a modern company and today. And one of the things that we both hinted, hit on the same time was that naps are really important. And I'd actually been a napper probably since the early 2000s. So how old was I then? So probably in my mid mid 30s, I started thinking or doing a midday nap. And it's great, especially when you're working from home. It's a way to kind of reset. You sit down and you set a timer for 20 minutes, just a 20 minute nap. That's all I need to take. 20 minute nap. And it's great. I wake up. I feel refreshed. I don't feel like I'm super groggy, but my brain is recharged and says, okay, now you can switch gears from doing the thing you do all day to make money. And now go do the thing that you do all night to have fun, right? Just all those little <laughs> side projects and all the podcasting stuff, all those sorts of things. So napping really helped me. And when I got to this agency, we actually had a nap room. We Ooh. had a nap room. Yeah, I had to do double duty as a supply closet, <laughs> but, but there was, <laughs> we had a massage therapist that would come in the office a uh, couple of times a month and we wound up buying a massage table and just left it set up in the supply closet, which is a very large supply closet for people who wanted to nap, which was almost exclusively me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Every day. Usually, well, I shouldn't say every day, probably three days a week, uh, I would eat a little lunch and then go take a 20-minute nap, set a little timer on my phone and wake back up and go by the rest of the day. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful. And I'm leading somewhere with the story. So my problem today, 10, 15 years later, whatever it's been since I was doing that, my problem today is that, or my problem last night, now I go to sleep relatively quickly, but my body, if it's woken up before 20 minutes... My body says, oh, that was your 20-minute nap. 
time to get up and do the rest of your day. And so getting back to sleep after that happens, it could be 1030 at night and I've only been asleep for 15 minutes. My body says, you're done for the night. Yeah, that's not fun. Wow. That okay, that's a new one. I thought I'd heard a ton of them. That's new. There are countless stories of people who wake up multiple times a night, whether it's bathroom or this or that or the other, and have trouble falling back asleep. But I I haven't run into one before where it's if I don't get into the deeper stages of sleep early on, I'm screwed. That's that's interesting. So yeah. What do you, so do you just get up and deal with it at that point or what happens then? Yeah. Then I've got to make a decision, right? So sometimes it's, uh, let's pick up the book. You know, that thing I was reading 15 minutes ago, let's pick <laughs> it up again and keep reading. Cause that usually causes me to fall asleep after a while. Uh, sometimes it's get up and go watch some television. Usually put on some mindless 1960s weird foreign drama, <laughs> which is fun, but I'm not invested in so that when I get a little groggy, I can just nod off uh, right there on the couch. Sometimes it's redose. I have an herbal remedy, I believe, which we spoke of, which helps me uh, get to and stay asleep, which basically makes me go to sleep. So sometimes I will enjoy more of that herbal remedy and see if that has a, an effect. Without getting into detail on the herbal remedy, because I have a sense that the people will be downloading and listening to this in certain states where that herbal remedy might not be readily available. Right. So, but here's my question. Have you, what happens when you don't uh, partake in the herbal remedy? What happens to your sleep then? Because um, you know where I'm going with this. Because a few yeah. weeks ago, we had Ryan Vandry on from Johns Hopkins. Okay. Who talked about this notion. He is probably... I, I I would unreservedly say probably the world's um, foremost researcher on cannabinoids and mm -hmm. sleep. Yeah. And he talked about how, first of all, there's it's hard to do large studies. On yes. This. And and the ones that have been done, the research that has been done points to there being evidence that will it help you fall asleep? Yeah, probably, at least in the short term, it will help you fall asleep. Um, mm -hmm. And sometimes when it doesn't, partaking in more might help you fall asleep even easier. Yep. But then once you are asleep, it's a lousy, easily interrupted, messed up <laughs> sleep stages kind of sleep. So <laughs> I can't help but hear you telling me what you're telling me and go, oh, Ryan would have a field day with you. Have you tr is that a regular thing for you? Is that how you regularly fall asleep or is it an yeah. occasional thing? No, it's a regular thing. I, I am in Arizona and in Arizona, we are a medical state. Uh, legal Full legalization is on the ballot for later this year, but I have my medical marijuana card in the state of Arizona and have for a number of years. And it is an almost every night. I was a daytime user when I was a kid. That was fun. But now, nowadays I'm an old man and it's really a sleep aid. And yeah, it, here's what, here's what I find. And I agree with your prior guest. We have terrible science on this. And we have terrible science because of the federal moratorium on the product itself. But we need a lot more testing to really understand which of the cannabinoids, you know, THCV versus THCA versus T. There's a whole bunch of them in there. Which ones do the yeah. things they do? But I can tell you my, you know, sample size of one, which is another way to say anecdote, but I like sample size of one uh, study shows, indicates to me that it is definitely an assist to get me to fall asleep. And Certain strains, which are higher or lower in various types of cannabinoids, will have a different impact on my sleep. And but but none of them are perfect. None of them are perfect. Like I can smoke an entire 
joint to use the parlance of today's. I could never, ever roll a joint. But nonetheless, I could smoke an entire one of those, which is way more than I normally do. And it will not make me sleep all night long. I still, I still rarely can sleep past 4 or 4.30 in the morning. So when I do get, it does help me get to sleep without a doubt. But if something interrupts my sleep two or three hours later, which is really all that the, the, the stoniness will, will stay, I'm, I'm, I'm awake anytime. And so once you're awake after, what's that look like? Is there yeah. any lingering effect? Is there any, anything that shows up at any other point? Yeah, um, not really. I mean, for, as far as, look, here's the reality. So if I wake up, like, la- not, last night wasn't bad, but the night before last, I woke up at 3.30 in the morning. And it's like, well, what are you going to do? The good news is I'm not really groggy all day. Even for the times when I wake up at 1.30 and can't get back to sleep, I'm typically not groggy the rest of the day. There's not, there aren't those knock-on effects, which I hear a lot of other people talk about. I'm ready to go to bed at 8.30 that night. Sure. But I'm usually looking at bed between 8.30 and 9 o'clock anyhow. That's my normal (laughs) rhythm says, hey, it's dark outside. You should be going to bed. And as soon as it starts to think about being light, I'm obviously going to wake up. So I, I guess I'm fortunate in that my insomnia it makes me mad that I didn't sleep really well, but it really, I don't have those lingering effects a lot of other people have to deal with. So the insomnia has lasted how long for you now? Because apparently oh when you had goodness. the nap room and the massage table, everything was good. <laughs> Although the, I got to tell you, falling asleep on a massage table would make me panic because I would be that guy that would be constantly rolling off the side. <laughs> yeah, you have, to be, you have to be careful about that, obviously. And um, especially in the supply closet, because I'd roll into a shelf and I'd wake up covered in staplers. Right. I mean, it was just, it's not a pretty picture. No, there's no good way out of that. And plus, who's banging around in the supply closet? Oh, it's Neil. <laughs> again who's he in there with luckily just himself it's good yeah so, exactly um, exactly with yeah. all that noise you'd think he'd had company <laughs> i'm sorry what was the question again we totally <laughs> went off topic there <laughs> how long has insomnia oh. been creeping into your life oh goodness i would say it has been a normal part of my life for the better part of 15 years and it's been, it's a progressive disease, if you will. I can use the word disease because it definitely is not ease. It has been getting progressively worse over time. When we, when my wife and I lived overseas for uh, a number of years, it was still with me then. So you asked the question earlier about how much is it that my entrepreneurial lifestyle play into that? I didn't sleep any better traveling the world without a job or anything really to worry about. I slept about the same as I do today. Interesting. Okay, so the herbal uh, remedy. (laughs) That that wasn't available as I was traveling the world. I'm sure it was available when I was traveling the world, but, you know, the the Arizona medical marijuana card isn't much help in Copenhagen. (laughs) (laughs) So in a clandestine fashion, one would have to uh, come across their herbal remedy. Alternate Um, sources, yes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Okay, so how did that creep into your... Uh, day-to-day existence then? Where did, did, is it just an idea that you thought I should try this? Was it prescribed to you? And uh, talk to me about the mechanism of that. Where did that all go? Sure, sure. So um, cannabis affects different people differently. And it also, as we talked about earlier, and depending on what the, what products are in there, which, which strains are high in certain levels, but it has almost always universally made me sleepy. I'm not, I don't get giddy. I don't get paranoid. I don't get any of the things you normally think about with that. But for me, it is always very much a, a depressing down 
mellowing out, removing stress, not caring about a lot of things, and ultimately falling asleep. But I've noticed that from when I was dabbling in it as a teenager. I noticed that was what it did for me. That's a... Uh, so when it, when Arizona became a medical state, and I thought, well, maybe I should try it for that, and that's in fact why I got my first medical card is on the idea of having insomnia. And they said, sure, because the doctors that give out marijuana cards are fake doctors. Let's really, <laughs> let's really face it. That was that was my reason to get there, and yeah, I swore by it because it, and I think the only reason is that it certainly, at least in my case, helped me fall asleep faster. I wouldn't say that it let, let me stay asleep much faster though. Okay, so you and I are not of entirely dissimilar vintage. Mm. Like the way I said that. I do like Um, the way you said that, right. So do you, when you tell me that your sleep is getting progressively worse and and that it sounds like you are frequently coming up with nights where you banged out four hours or five hours of sleep, what's your level of concern about that? Where are you on that? I'm okay. It's to me, it's I've accepted it. It's the way things are. There are certain times when I can sleep a lot longer. Uh, I, like I, I pick up my nap during the day sometimes. That helps a whole lot. But I've always been a little weird. So I grew up in the country. I'm a country boy. Grew up on a farm. And when you grow up on a farm, you have to get up in the morning and go do things because you either do it during the daylight hours, you do it during the dark hours. It's really up to you. So, I, and I've always been the kind of person that, that rises early, even going out camping, if my family and I go, which we don't do anymore, but, you know, years ago when we used to do that, I will be awake as soon as the sun starts lightening the horizon. It really doesn't matter. I just, I always do that. So, I've never been, I probably was as a kid, from what I can remember, even as a, as a teenager, I wasn't the one that would sleep until two o'clock in the afternoon. I was always up early, just because I had to, so maybe my body just wired to do that. Interesting. Okay. So not everybody that's in the same boat as I am is in the same level of panic that I am about uh, not getting the uh, recommended amount of sleep, et cetera. Yeah, certainly not me. I mean, to me, it's it's resignation. My, my mom, she's usually up at 3.30 in the morning every day, and she always has been. And yeah, it's just my, my wife will sleep all day. Given the opportunity, she, would, she is one of those who could just sleep forever. Like on the weekends, when I leave the bedroom around four thirty, five o'clock, I close the door quietly. She has earplugs in and I go do the things I do for four hours until she gets out of bed. But it's just become a routine with us. My friends on the East Coast know that they can reach out to me like at six o'clock their time. I'm probably awake. <laughs> They're probably not going to bother me. So, yeah. I will keep that in mind and I will do my best not to bother you. But, uh, <laughs> I tell you what, I appreciate you making time for this. Sure. Because uh, we, we, yeah, you and I in, in some email exchanges have batted this around a little bit. And it was definitely something that I wanted to explore a little bit further. So I appreciate yeah. you having a few minutes to kind of walk me through certainly the genesis of how it became a part of your day-to-day routine. And yeah, what the impact of that has been all along. Evo, thanks. You're welcome, Neil. Thanks for having me on. That's Evo Terra, the host of Podcast Pontifications. From Evo, we go to Dr. Spencer Dawson, a clinical psychologist in private practice specializing in behavioral sleep medicine. Spencer, I am told that you uh, listen occasionally to episodes of the Snooze Button podcast. And so this very first question is not going to come as much of a curveball to you and no pressure. I kind of know that you've had some time to prep your answer. So here it comes. Spencer, how did you sleep last night? Oh man, not only was I expecting it, I was, it was uh, on my mind last night and I think it actually uh, messed my sleep up a little bit, a little bit of performance anxiety. (laughs) Right? 
so yeah, it was, uh, you know, compared to a normal night, I had a little bit more of a, a little bit of trouble falling asleep. Um, also we have a new puppy who was, you know, requires a little bit of, um, attention. So he kind of got half an ear open for that. But, uh, after that, you know, I fell asleep just fine, stayed asleep and, um, yeah, woke up feeling pretty all right. Puppies and babies mess with people's sleep like I have I've never imagined. Now, the puppy, I'm assuming, or I, and, and no judgment here if I'm wrong, um, puppy is probably what, either crated or sequestered somewhere else? Or did you fall victim to the same thing that we did when we got our puppy, which is, oh, we don't want to leave her alone in the house. She needs to come and snuggle in the bed <laughs> with us, which then led to its own special brand of insomnia. Yeah, no, we've, uh, we've been crating him. Uh, we had one night where we, uh, let him stay out, but, uh, we have a grown dog who can, who can stay out and he, he just stays in the crate overnight and that works out just fine. He's get pretty comfortable with it. The crate's in the bedroom anyway. So if he needs to, you know, whine cause he needs to go, get up to, you know, have a potty break in the middle of the night, he can do that. So for you, if, well, okay. So for example, dog needs potty break middle of night. What does Spencer do when Spencer gets back to bed? What do you do on nights when sleep is an interesting challenge? Yeah, that's a good question. I usually, if sleep is a challenge and for me, thankfully, usually it's not, um, what I'll do is I'll, you know, I, I practice what I preach. I get up out of bed. I'll do something relatively relaxing for me and basing that on what's relaxing for me isn't you know, necessarily relaxing for, for other folks. Uh, but I'll get up and do something. And once I start feeling, you know, like I could nod off again, back to bed. I want to tell you about, because this will springboard into something that I know is right in your wheelhouse. I want to tell you quickly about my first sleep lab that I did at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto. And, and I won't bore you with the story about my periodic limb movement index of 82. What I will bore <laughs> you with is the details of when I got the numbers back from my sleep doctor, Mark Bulas. And my perception of that night was that it took me forever to fall asleep and that I was awake for probably about two thirds of the night because um, I, I have a bunch of memories of different things that happened over the course of the night. And so when I found out from Mark that I fell asleep within, I think it was 25 or 30 minutes and that I was asleep for something like 90% of the night. I was stunned because that didn't line up with what my personal recollection of the night was. But apparently, I'm not unique. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a fascinating question. This is something that got on my mind. I got my entry into the sleep world as a research assistant at the University of Michigan and running uh, running research studies overnight. So not clinical folks. Uh, but doing studies to try to better understand sleep. And we, you know, we run the EEG overnight. I would be there watching, literally seeing them sleeping. And then in the morning, we always have them fill out the same form. How long did it take for you to fall asleep? How long did you sleep? And I don't know how many times, probably uh, quite often, you know, there was a pretty big discrepancy what, from between what I saw with my own eyes and then, you know, what people were telling me in the morning. So your experience falls, you know, right in line with, uh, with what I've seen so many times. Um, and they call that sleep state misperception, right? Yeah, so it's um, it's gotten a couple of different different names, and yeah, it's been called uh, sleep state misperception. You know, it's been called uh, paradoxical insomnia. Some people use the term sleep discrepancy, and it depends a little bit on how you how you understand what's going on. And I think discrepancy is uh, probably the best term because it's you know 
it's just kind of laying out that there is a difference between the two different ways that, or two of the different ways that we measure sleep. One is with, you know, EEG doing your PSG in the sleep lab and another is by going and asking people and, you know, which, which one is more valid. You know, there isn't, there isn't a straight answer to that. So I think it's, you know, it's important to focus mainly on the fact that there's a discrepancy and when there's a discrepancy that can really be informative um, and this is something we see kind of across um, across disciplines, across psychology, for sure. I mean, if you have, for example, a kid who behaves one way at home and another way at school, it's not that the kid has, you know, doesn't have a behavior issue or does have a behavior issue and either the teacher or the parents aren't picking up on it, but rather that, you know, you're just getting different pictures into what's going on. So, you know, is it the fact that... Um, that people are actually asleep when the PSG says they're asleep? Are they, are they lying to you? Um, probably not. Um, <laughs> but it's a complicated question. I mean, even, even the people have taken such a fine grained approach as, you know, taking people, uh, these are, these are very brave, uh, brave people with insomnia who agreed to come, you know, be in a study where they come into a lab, sleep away from home somewhere they don't know. And knowing that they're going to be woken up in the middle of the night, multiple times that's a very brave person and you can take folks with insomnia bring them to the lab watch their polysomnogram you know as the you know as the feed is coming through and wait for them to be asleep wake them up and ask the question were you awake or asleep and what we find is that you know folks with insomnia in that moment are going to be more likely to tell you that they were awake when you just woke them up, even if you if you called their name several times and say, oh, I heard it once and I was awake when I heard it. So does sleep state misperception also apply to that phenomenon that I thought I was alone on this, but apparently uh, tons of people run into this where you blink and it's an hour and a half later. You know what I mean? Where you, where you feel like all you did was just uh, close your eyes, take a deep breath and, and opened your eyes again. But then you look over at the clock and you realize, oh, a whole mess of time passed that I was apparently asleep and I had no idea I was even sleeping. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It can, it can definitely cut both ways. You know, there can be folks who, you know, we bring them into the lab and their sleep looks like really pretty troubled. And you ask them how they slept in the morning and say, hmm, fine, same as usual. So yeah, it really, it really can cut both ways. And, you know, it's, it's such a hard thing to, um, to answer, to answer the question, how long did you sleep last night? How long were you awake? How long did it take for you to fall asleep? Because when we fall asleep, our brain, you know, doesn't actually turn off, but our consciousness does most of the time. And so, well, and I guess one of the things that led me down this road to even finding out what sleep state misperception was, was, uh, and, and I guess I am going to bore you with the story about my periodic limb movement index is that when I went for my PSG, I, my perception was that it took me, uh, forever to fall asleep. Um, what apparently happened was that, and this this was true of looking at forgive me for this in advance looking at my Fitbit data uh, leading up to my PSG 
it would tell me that it was taking me sometimes as long as three and a half or four hours to fall asleep. Even though to me, I would had, let's say I go to bed at eight o'clock and, and as far as I was concerned, I was out by nine, maybe my Fitbit would say, no, you didn't actually fall asleep until about quarter after 12. And I guess some of that was because of the periodic limb movement disorder that I was thrashing around enough in my sleep that as far as my Fitbit was concerned, I'm sorry, if you're moving this much, you obviously are still awake. (laughs) You know, does all of that tie into, because I'm looking at, for example, last night, my recollection of last night, I went to bed at 10 after nine because I looked at my watch when I got into bed and my Fitbit says I didn't fall asleep until uh, it says here 1028 last night. My impression of that was that actually I fell asleep pretty quickly. So who's right? Is it me or my Fitbit? Yeah. I mean, it, it sort of depends. I mean, in this case, I'd, I'd go with you. I'd say that you're the one who is right there. Um, and the thing about these periodic movements during sleep is, yeah, they, they make you move while you're asleep. That's sort of the, that's sort of the definition there. So if the Fitbit is, you know, focused only on, you know, is your body moving, then yeah, for sure. It's going to see that um, you look awake. Now, when you come into the sleep lab, um, there are limitations there too. So, what we do is we usually break uh, break a continuous record of your EEG and um, everything else that gets measured there into thirty second epochs and assign, you know, say, are you awake or asleep for that? And thirty seconds might seem pretty fine grained, but you know, in some cases, it really isn't. You know, it uh, if you just move a little bit or if you wake up a little bit. Um, it can be enough that, you know, if it's 15.1 seconds, then the whole 30 seconds is counted as being awake, especially with how sensitive the measurements are. If you, if you kick or jerk, you know, just a little bit, that can be enough to throw everything out of whack, um, in terms of, uh, being able to pick up what your brain is doing from the EEG, just because of how sensitive those, uh, measurements are, you know, having some audio background, you know, I'm sure you have some audio background, you know, you have these, the gain on the amplifiers turned up pretty high. So when you whack it, um, you know, it kind of maxes out and takes a little while for everything to, to stabilize again. So if you can't tell what it is, the rules say, you know, you, you if you're moving that much, you must be awake. So we kind of fall into the same trap trap in the sleep lab. So does does sleep state misperception or paradoxical insomnia or whatever you want to call it, does it have any implications for patients in terms of being something they need to get looked at? Or is it just another interesting statistic sort of in the overall sleep picture? Yeah, so I think people look at it in some some different sorts of ways. And um, there's a. You know, I think that if you have if you have the sense that your sleep is is not great, it's worth getting getting looked at and worth consulting with a with a professional. And um, you know whether that's you know something you know subjective or objective. Um, I don't know if you'd be able to make that discrepancy without going and seeing a, seeing a professional in the first place. But, um, but yeah, there there are a lot of um, associations between this discrepancy and a lot of other problems, whether it's um, Sometimes it's tied in with more sort of mental health problems. Um, that doesn't mean that one's causing the other. Um, it could go either way. It could go both ways. It could be sort of a cycle. Um, but it's also, you know, the encouraging thing is that it's something that does tend to um, respond to treatment in a lot of cases. 
Um, usually what we see is, you know, if you can find a study that has some nice longitudinal data and you're plotting both what people think they slept and then what they been, what their sleep was measured as with something like, uh, one of our ACTA watches, you know, one of our research grade Fitbits, um, what we see is, you know, maybe at first people are underestimating their sleep and as treatment progresses, people are then overestimating their sleep, which is actually the normal, um, the normal uh, way for somebody to perceive their sleep is uh, if you take a, somebody who's a good sleeper and ask, how do you sleep last night? They might not have any recollection. They might not know you know, what they were thinking about before they fell asleep, how long it took for them to fall asleep, even what time they turned out the lights because they're just not really paying attention to that. And so they say, well, must have been pretty quick. You know, I didn't really think about it. Even though we know that, you know, a normal night of sleep, you know, includes a number of wakings, even if they're pretty brief, a lot of times we don't even remember them. Yeah, it's funny. I see people on whether it's Facebook or Reddit or wherever um, who claim, you know, a sleep efficiency of 100 percent. Oh, I, I fall asleep the minute my head hits the pillow and I don't even wake up once until uh, my alarm goes off in the morning. I'm like, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah. you can't tell them that because as far as they're concerned, that's their experience is, yes, my head, I fall asleep instantly and I, I, I barely toss or turn. Heaven for I don't snore. None of that, you know. And, and they have this idea of themselves as the picture perfect sleeper. I guess where this becomes a problem, for example, for a person like that who believes that they've got a sleep efficiency of 100 percent. And and yes, my I fall asleep as soon as my head hits a pillow, et cetera, that if they're and, and correct me if I've gone astray here in, in mixing up my my titles and terms, if their perceived sleep state is serious enough, there might actually be sleep issues there that they're not even conscious of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it, you know, I think it really relates to something that I've noticed um, in the field in general, which is that people put out these blanket recommendations that, you know, we've seen this for a long time, you know, a, a article in, in a magazine says you have to get eight hours of sleep and then everybody with insomnia sort of freaks out says, Whoa, that's, that's awful. And then people who don't have insomnia say, nah, I don't need that. Um, I get by just fine on six hours. And so that message doesn't work so well. And then we have some people come in and, you know, explain a lot more about some of the health benefits. Okay, great. Kind of again, supporting, you know, getting more sleep. And so maybe you get to encourage some people who aren't prioritizing sleep to actually, you know, go and, you know, make it more of a priority at the expense of the folks with insomnia who then say, Oh, no, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to develop Alzheimer's disease. I'm going to get a heart attack. I'm going to have a stroke. Um, and then come, then to the rescue come the insomnia experts who say, no, 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 no. You know, it's all, it's all okay. You know, it's not that big of a deal. You know, you know, a lot of the data is, um, is unclear on this and it, you know, might not hold for folks with insomnia or, you know, whatever sort of reassurances. And you should really, you know, take these particular steps. Um, but some of the, some of those recommendations, those might apply just fine to folks with insomnia, but, you apply those to folks who don't have insomnia and you again end up with some um, some just recommendations that aren't really appropriate that can that can cause uh, that can cause more problems. So, you know, with a person who has, you know, 100 percent sleep efficiency and they think, you know, 100 percent sleep efficiency is perfect. You know, that's that's one metric. And, you know, if somebody says says that, OK, all right, that's good. But what else? 
how much sleep are yeah. you getting during the day? Are you falling asleep during the day? Um, what is this actually looking like? Um, how, how can we really sort of flesh this out and like paint a broader, broader picture of, of your overall sleep health? Well, it's funny that you say um, that you say that too, because I mean, when I'm interacting with these people and I try not to anymore, unless somebody said something that's just so outrageous that I can't help but weigh in. Um, I never say anything to anyone in any of these discussion groups or anything that isn't based on something I've heard from, you know, a prior guest on the show, for example. Um, and so based on on even just this interaction that I had with this 100 percent sleep efficiency person, um, you know, based on things that other people had told me, I said, okay, if you're asleep as soon as your head hits the pillow, that's a sign that you probably have some kind of sleep deprivation thing going on. Um, and if you need an alarm to wake you up in the morning, that's another sign that you probably have some kind of sleep deprivation thing going on. So both things to me are, are suggestions that maybe you're not the champion sleeper you think you are, that maybe there's some stuff going on that you, maybe want to take into account and get looked at. Do you, do you ever have people show up at the sleep lab who, uh, who don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with their sleep? Their experience is that everything is fine, but some other thing has brought them in. Well, not usually because usually they're, you know, who's going to show up to a sleep lab if they don't have a sleep problem. Right. So it's pretty, it's pretty uncommon. So, well, um, I mean, it, I mean, in my case, I had, you know, and it was kind of the genesis of this show mm -hmm. was I had just kind of written off all my sleep stuff to, you know what, I wake up at a stupid hour to go to work every day and I'm just going to have this fractured relationship with sleep until my wife started talking about, here's how much you're snoring. Here's how much you're tossing and turning. Here's what's going on. So I didn't realize necessarily that I had anything diagnosed noticeable going on, but it was the information my wife gave me and the information I was getting from my Fitbit that's made me go, all right, maybe I, maybe I need to look into this a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think that that can be a pretty common experience. Um, you know, it can be like you said, you know, a bed partner, for example. Um, well, I think a lot of times it's, it's, uh, it's the wife who gets the reluctant husband to go get some of some of his health stuff checked out. Um, yeah, so you know, much more than just sleep. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And there are just a lot of, you know, misunderstanding around, you know, what is normal sleep and is snoring normal or not? And we see it, you know, even from a young age in cartoons of, you know, cartoon characters sleeping and it's not taken as anything bad. Um, it's just sort of normal sleeping. And so there's a little bit of an element of that. So yeah, it's a lot of times, you know, it's worth, getting getting it checked out if you know if there's some concerns being raised by uh by folks who are either you know the bed partner for sure is um is a good uh good metric there sort of a the canary in the coal mine somebody who you know you might be sleeping through uh you know whatever sorts of problems that a particular person has uh, but their sleep is disrupted but another sort of nice thing about that is that a lot of times you know treating one person ends up benefiting two people <laughs> true. Yeah, very true. For, for my case, my insomnia and my periodic limb movement disorder kind of went hand in hand. And so thankfully, when I got this uh, wonderful little bottle of Mirapex um, that uh, Mark Bulas prescribed for me, and we knocked out the periodic limb movement disorder, 
um, and my RLS as well, uh, then the quality of my sleep improved drastically and, and the insomnia became less of a, you know, a thing that was screaming for my attention is, is, is it typically a, a scenario where if there are a few things at play, you fix one and everything's good? You know, that's really the ideal situation. Sometimes though, you know, our problems can conspire, uh, conspire against us. So, uh, you know, uh, one something that's actually pretty common and was originally identified, you know, back in, I think it was the, the seventies, the, the co-occurrence of insomnia and sleep apnea. And previously people thought that this was impossible. How, if you had sleep apnea, could you also have insomnia? Yeah, because don't you have to be sleeping to have to to have the sleep apnea? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do. Um, so yeah, so you know, people with insomnia they still do sleep. They just have a hard time falling asleep, hard time staying asleep, or you know, one or the other, or both. Um, and then uh, I think part of the issue came down to how sleep apnea originally kind of came to the attention of. Um, you know, the, the pioneers in the field before we had a term for sleep apnea. And a lot of the reason why they were coming in was because they're, you know, they can't stay awake. They're falling asleep all the time. And so, okay, you're falling asleep all the time. Let's go see a sleep doctor. And so that became sort of one of the cardinal symptoms of uh, obstructive sleep apnea syndrome. So syndrome being sort of a combination of things. So not only are you having breathing problems during the night, but then during the day, you have excessive sleepiness. You can't stay awake. So how could a person who, you know, it, you know, falls asleep as soon as their head hits the pillow, has no recollection of waking during the night, can sleep for hours, can sleep for more hours during the daytime. It's just like, how could that possibly be any more opposite from a person with insomnia who can't fall asleep, can't stay asleep, can't sleep even during the daytime? Sure. Um, so what they found was that, you know, you can have these insomnia symptoms and then when you do fall asleep, you're having sleep breathing problems too. But instead of becoming, you know, a person who's very sleepy, you kind of go a different direction. You know, it's not enough um, to kind of smooth things out, uh, this accumulated sleepiness from the sleep fragmentation. Um, so it's a little bit of a kind of an interesting uh, scenario where, you know, you can have the same sort of uh, respiratory difficulty, but how your sleep responds and your daytime sleepiness and daytime functioning, how that responds um, can be a little bit different person to person. Is sleep apnea becoming the easy to reach thing on the shelf for uh, for GPs and family doctors, do you think? Like where, you know, if they're looking to treat, they'll say, here, take some melatonin. Or if you go in describing a particular, I'm snoring at night. Well, then you obviously, like my case, I went to my, uh, my family doctor and um, my my wife told her that I was sleeping and that it was occasionally like uh, trying to go to sleep next to a chainsaw, which is good. Uh, it's a fair description. I probably earned it. Um, and the doctor immediately said, oh, well, that's textbook uh, sleep apnea. You need to go and get uh, a test at a sleep lab. And then I go for my test and I find out, no, my, my, my very, very mild sleep apnea. And so is it a thing where... And this is becoming a recurring theme on the show lately uh, because a whole ton of time isn't spent in med school on sleep disorders. Um, is it that sleep apnea becomes the thing everybody reaches for? 
Yeah, you know, I think for for your primary care docs, for your GPs, they got to know, they got to have a pretty good handle on being able to identify the most common source of problems and knowing when to refer, when in, knowing when something is a little bit beyond their scope. So sleep is kind of in um, kind of in a nice place in that. You know, if if your GP could just say, "Oh yeah, it's um, it's sleep apnea," send you home with a CPAP, and then you never you you never would have found out that you had you know this periodic limb movement disorder, um, or at least that would have taken more time as you you know pursue this other avenue, find it's not working, feel more frustrated, come back and say you know whenever you can get back into the clinic and say, "Oh, actually, you know." Good try, Doc, but you know, it will help the help with the chainsaw, but you know, I'm still dancing in my sleep. So um, so it's it's kind of nice that right now, you know, uh, you know, getting a uh, sort of the idea that sleep apnea is what's going on gets you sent to uh, a sleep lab, maybe sent to a you know, a sleep physician for an examination that can be more comprehensive. It's nice that, you know, it is on more people's radar is something that can be, uh, can be a problem. Uh, and not only a problem, but, a, but, but a treatable problem. Okay. So let's talk about it as being a problem. Where is, cause this was an interesting conversation too, from a few weeks ago with Jay Ellis, where we talked about the difference between uh, acute insomnia and chronic insomnia. So for a person who, uh, wh- where is that line of, just plain old garden variety snoring, um, which may or may not be objectionable to the person next to us. Uh, where's the line between snoring and I potentially have sleep apnea that I need to go for a PSG and get treated? Where's the line there? How do we know if I'm sitting at home listening and my spouse complains that I snore? How do I know whether or not it's something that needs attention? Yeah, I'd say it's a difficult question um, to answer in some ways. I think one good metric is, can your snoring be heard through a closed door? And if the answer is yes, that's probably something that, uh, that requires following up because, you know, even, even our definition of snoring, I feel like is a little fuzzy. And you could say that, you know, somebody's snoring when they just have audible breathing without any sort of interruption or that sort of guttural vibration of, um, our tissues rumbling as their partway collapse. And we were trying to move, uh, move air through our, um, through our throat and creating a little bit of a trombone or trumpet um, that sounds a little a lot less melodious, <laughs> and so, so yeah. Right? So it's, or there's, it's not or just there's that other extreme where you're like Fred Flintstone and the bed sheets are coming up and down off the bed while you're snoring. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So something like um, something like being able to hear hear it through a closed door that kind of gets at the volume. Um, hearing somebody gasping or or choking. That's certainly a good sign of uh, that there's something more serious going on that should be checked out or some of the other issues can come along like um, like high blood pressure that's not responding to uh, to treatment that can be um, that can be attributable to uh, obstructive sleep apnea as one example. Really? Okay, that's one I didn't know. Yeah, so it's it's. You know, again, sort of a good news, bad news. It's bad news that's, that's causing it, but it's good news that there's a way to improve your cardiovascular health without another medication, you know, and something that may have the benefit of, you know, helping you sleep better through the night, helping your spouse sleep better through the night. Maybe you've started using separate bedrooms and now you, maybe you can sleep together again. And then also feeling more awake during the daytime. So it can be just, um, I wouldn't call it a panacea, but it's got uh, multiple benefits that can that people can, can reap. 
You're you're hilarious because here's what's going on right now at Headley Manor uh, is that Mrs. Headley and I are having uh, this interesting conversation about uh, our and again I'm I'm sorry for the term I didn't invent the term Wendy Troxel I'm sorry um, we're talking about our sleep divorce which has been going on for I think about six months now where we started sleeping in separate bedrooms but the downside of us now sleeping in separate bedrooms is that I have no idea what I am doing at night I have no idea if I'm still, because there's nobody to complain about my thrashing, my snoring, my whatever else is going on. And so as we get to the stage where my numbers on my tracker are looking decent enough that maybe we need to consider putting an end to the sleep divorce and getting, getting back together in the same bed, I'm terrified that on night one, there I am lying, flipping around like a fish on the bottom of a boat <laughs> again, and I just go back to the other room. Like, you know what I mean? So there's yeah. that idea of, I would like to think that I've got the problem licked, but I don't know until I either go back for another sleep test or until she can weigh in and let me know if my progress is on some level imaginary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I think probably, uh, you know, trying to go back to sharing the same bed is probably going to be a little bit uh, cheaper than, oh, no, you're in Canada, aren't you? Um <laughs> The economics of uh, of uh, the healthcare system are a little bit different there. Uh, yeah. But at least you can try that whenever you want. You know, I feel like, honey, I feel like, you know, my sleep's a little bit better. Maybe we can give this give this a try. And then it's up to her to say, you know, yeah, we can give that a shot. Or Yeah, because she's sleeping like gold ever since I moved into the other yeah. room. It's, uh, you know, she's, she's doing great. And so we came to realize that all the trouble that she was having sleeping were directly attributable to the problems that I was having sleeping. Um, I, I love that for people who uh, are, are joining the show every week, and I'm finding more and more of these people are out there. I didn't know they existed. Um, they, they show up looking for a takeaway or two, something that they didn't know before. And, and there's so much there about the idea of when your uh, sleep apnea or your sleep issue uh, is, is at a stage where you need to go and get it looked at. And, and I, I'm, I'm super grateful for that piece of it. So um, before we go on to anything else, thank you for that. Cause that's one of those that uh, people who have tuned into the show are, are going to walk away going, huh, I have this going on. I didn't know. And now I, now I know I need to go and get it looked at. So Spencer, thank you for that. Yeah, happy to have the opportunity. Um, before I completely let you go, I w so I, I, kn I know about some of the work that's gotten your attention previous to our getting together today. Um, what's on your radar right now? What are you looking at right now? What are the things that have your attention as far as the sleep world is concerned? Yeah, that's a good question. So there are uh, a couple of things that I think are either brand new and well, probably not brand new um, because the research world moves pretty slowly. But some of the things that I think are, are really interesting are in the space of uh, narcolepsy and hypersomnia. So kind of the, um, the opposite sort of problem in a way um, where some of the work I was involved with uh, on my postdoc was um, developing ways to uh, help folks in a, um, in a non-medication approach, not as an alternative to medication because these are uh, medical disorders that require medical treatment, but helping people cope with uh, the reality of living with a chronic sleep disorder that leaves them um, kind of sapped of energy um, and having um, really just a generally a, a hard time with life, especially if you consider that um, 
these folks with uh, narcolepsy or hypersomnia, again, getting back to the issue of, you know, maybe your GP, the only thing that they know is obstructive sleep apnea and maybe insomnia. And somebody comes in, they have something going on with their sleep and they say, well, it's got to be one of those or it's got to be, you can't stay awake during the day. Oh, it's probably depression. And so what you see for folks with narcolepsy is the average amount of time between when they start having their symptoms and when they finally get a diagnosis is about seven years. Wow. So they're living with, you know, being very sleepy during the day, having a hard time um, staying awake, focusing, concentrating, any of these sorts of things. And what does that do to you as a person? You know, you say, I can't function. I can't do things. And, you know, my doctor says it's fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with me. It must be who I am as a person. So it can take a pretty significant uh, toll on a person's self-concept. So all of a sudden now you, you do get the diagnosis after an average of seven years, sometimes faster, sometimes slower. Mm-hmm. But you your whole sort of sort of self-esteem and where your life has gone or not gone as a result of the challenges you faced, you know, just because now you have a medication that, you know, ideally, you know, helps you um, function a lot better than you did before. Um, it still sort of leaves these, these scars uh, to an extent, or even for a lot of folks, they have, they still have some amount of challenges, even if things are a little bit better. So kind of helping people with that, I think is, is really part of the goal there because the sleep doctor, you know, they can help with the sleep, but they can't really help with coping with the illness. And then you go to a mental health professional and they get, as as little or less training in sleep as um, as our GPs, and so they don't know anything about how to help that. So this work uh, being led by Jason Ong is really focused on trying to provide um, what I think is going to be a really beneficial uh, service for folks. Well, and if a conversation about narcolepsy has uh, piqued your interest, uh, it's worth pointing out that our friend Julie Flygar is coming back on the show in a few weeks because we are uh, rapidly approaching World Narcolepsy Day, which is September the 22nd. And so Julie and I are already at the point where we're swapping, you know, emails and whatnot, trying to figure out uh, what we can do for World Narcolepsy Day here on the show. But she is definitely going to be involved in some way or another because you're absolutely right in that it is a disorder that not nearly enough people, myself included, up until when Julie first joined the show a couple months back, um, I knew nothing about narcolepsy other than the ridiculous scenes that showed up in movies, um, you know, that are just as ridiculous as the Fred Flintstone sheets levitating off the bed because he's snoring so much, um, you know, and so Julie provided a terrific education there and there's a lot more to learn and I'm excited about talking about it here on the show in a few weeks as well. Um, but Spencer, I, it's a treat. I'm, I'm glad you had some time for this today. Tons to learn and, and tons to take away from it. And I, I always, I always appreciate when I walk away from these, you know, it's like you and I talked about as we were getting set to get rolling, where I said to you, I don't know ever on this show what the second question is going to be until I've heard the answer to the first question. And I love these episodes where I walk away from stuff and I'm able to go up to Mrs. Edley and go, did you know this? And she's like, no, really? <laughs> so uh, thanks for some of that. I, I guess they call them light bulb moments still, but thanks for bringing those this week. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. 
There you go, Dr. Spencer Dawson from bettersleepbloomington.com. Um, we'll post a link for Spencer. We'll post a link for our friend Evo Terra. All that's in the show notes and on our website. Our website's where you can also find that link we mentioned about uh, reviews, feedback, and support that I would very much like to ask you to go click on. And again, if you were part of the 2020 Sleep Conference this year, Sleep 2020 Conference this year, I want you to send me an email. The email address again is guests at the snoozebutton.com. Guests at the snoozebutton.com because there was so much great sleep science that was part of this year's event. And if you were one of the researchers who was presenting, we want to shout to the world about the work that you are doing. So again, guests at the snoozebutton.com. More great guests for next week coming up, and Michael Grandner will be back as well. But in the meantime, my name is Neil Headley. Hey, Get some sleep, would you?